Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Welcome to this week's episode of the Prestige, a podcast about films made by film lovers for film lovers. Each week we take a different movie from various themes, genres, and look at it and explore some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And at the moment we're making our way through the vampire film genre, so more on that later. We generally end each episode with recommendations based on the film we've been discussing and we start with some thoughts about what else we've been watching or reading or listening to during the week. So, Rob, what have you got for us in the way of this week's watching? So I haven't actually watched anything new movie-wise in the last uh, couple of weeks, but I have delved into a... It's not really a guilty pleasure of mine, but it's it's a show I much enjoy. Um, I've been catching up on the Great British Menu, um, which is a BBC, I believe, BBC cooking show. Um, those who don't know the show, maybe from across the pond or anywhere, essentially it is top chefs competing against each other for the chance to cook at a some sort of contrived banquet um, that they kind of pull together. It's in season fourteen currently. So the banquet this year is some sort of dinner at Ayur They are kind of scraping the barrel a little bit on what the prize is. But essentially it is a chance to see top chefs being inventive and not being sort of bound by what they've got to sell in the restaurants. So there's a lot of reductions and foams and obscure ingredients. And a foodie like me, it's, you know, it's glorious. As I'm currently on a diet and can't eat nice things, it's kind of just like... Being just staring at the toys inside, all the sweets. But I'm a foodie. I love this food, and I'm very interested in watching kind of the weird stuff they pull together. Um, so if you like that sort of thing, um, it is in a kind of Bake Off way. They're all kind of friends, so it, it's not very. It's not, it's not you know Top Chef or that kind of thing where it's like very competitive against each other. They are competitive, obviously, but they're all very helpful. If something's in trouble, they help each other out. You know, a very British collegiate atmosphere getting some of our shows. Um, but they are still gunning for a prize. So yeah, that's uh, the great British menu. I don't know if it's available anywhere but on iPlayer, um, but uh, maybe you can find it off the back of an internet lorry if need be. Sam? Um, I will just add a sort of recommendation of mine to that um, that you might find interesting if you haven't seen already, Rob, and other people may enjoy um, there is a BBC series, a few episodes in, about a chef's brigade. Um, and it's this idea that you each kitchen is made up of your um, various... the head chef and then various sous chefs and pastry chefs. Um, and it's kind of this sort of reality TV type thing where the the head chef moulds his team and certain people get kicked off it and certain people come on board but it's 
I mean, I I don't particularly like sort of TV like that. I mean, I hate something like X Factor, but there's something about this that you say you using the word collegiate. That there's there's something more sort of kind of welcoming and developmental about the way that this show mm. runs. And I mean, I I, I watched an episode where. Um, yeah, someone left and someone joined, but it just felt like I mean, the guy who left really wasn't suited to it. It was it wasn't just a harsh let's kick off the yeah. worst one. It was someone who genuinely shouldn't have been there. So something quite interesting about that. And also, even if you don't like cooking much, they they travel to various delightful places all around Europe so you can marvel at the scenery. That's always good in these kind of shows. Yes. Enjoyable. Um, But I want to talk about uh, not a cooking show. Um, A comedian I very much enjoy is James A. Caster and um, a week or so ago my wife and I went actually a couple of weeks ago now, um, we went to see him live in Leeds, um, and since then I've been reminding myself just how much I like him, and he did a sort of series of specials for Netflix, so I'm working my way through those at the moment. Um, so not a, not a fresh watching, but a re-watching based on the is the live show the same as his uh, Netflix show? No, no, no. The, the, li- the li- live show is from this year and last year. The Netflix shows sort of start about five or six years ago and then they're four years worth mm. of material. Yeah, so I have watched his, I think his latest Netflix show, um, having come across him on the um, Off Menu podcast, which is very funny. Um, mm, so yes. yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit. I would add to that as well. I think it's the, especially his his latest stand up. There's like four episodes um, that is just it's just brilliant. It's brilliant comedy. Um, it's right at my kind of weirdness funny balance. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I I forgot that off menu. The, the comedy and food actually come together. Yes, very much my wheelhouse. Hurrah! Yes, two British guys talking about food and comedy. Like it, it's it's right there. <laughs> so, Rob, what are we talking about this week? This week we are talking about the 1973 experimental vampire film Ganja and Hess. The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. Ganjan Hess tells the tale of Dr. Hess Green, an anthropologist um, studying an ancient African nation of blood drinkers. Through a bizarre series of events, he ends up being stabbed by his assistant, I suppose, by his man, um, and contracts a sort of blood drinking disease in which he is compelled to um actually drink blood and he gains some immortality at this point he meets the widow of his 
now deceased um, assistant, and they embark on a love affair, both of the physical nature, but also of the supernatural, in that she he brings her into his vampiric world. The movie never mentions vampirism by name, um, and it's certainly a very different film to any other film you've watched here. It's much more experimental. It's much more art house in his respect and infamously it was commissioned as a black exploitation film in sort of the theme of blackula but bill gunn the director wasn't interested in doing that and so he made this film which was shown to rave reviews at khan and then hated by its producers and was brutally cut down to 73 minutes and then post bill gunn's death it was restored and has achieved a somewhat level of notoriety since then, it's been restored, been restored as it could to its original form and its full learning length. Sam, this film is very different to most things that we've watched as part of this show and very different to the vampire films up until now. How did you find it? I love this film. I thought it was absolutely insane and just delightfully weird and it was about religion and race and um, it's various points sort of um, class as well and it just I enjoyed that and then at times I had no idea what was going on and like I've just just as you've been talking about it it's just kind of made a bit more sense for me as a film <laughs> so it's just you can't you can't really understand you can't really sort of I don't know understand not quite the word but as you watch a film you just have to experience it mm. rather than sort of thinking about what's going on and um, and and I really loved it because of that. That may contradict other things I've said about other films, but you know what, it was great. I see what you're saying. I think, I mean, if we sort of look at Western cinema, particularly, there's a great feeling of the film tries to explain itself to you. That even mm. if there's an allegory, some of the lines, it will tell you exposition is a big thing in movies. There's a lot around telling you who a person is and the world they're living. They want the film wants you, the director wants you to get the film. And this film doesn't seem to care about that. It doesn't yeah. seem to care in any way if you get it or if you understand it. There clearly is a narrative, and as I said in my little intro there, there is a narrative thread that runs through it, certainly. But that's a very minor thread in a much larger movie. And it does not care to explain it. It doesn't, doesn't really have an ending or a beginning there's no real plot moving forwards mm. it seems very contradictory in the way it handles western religion versus african religion actually yeah. it, ha- it has things to say particularly about race but it doesn't doesn't actually give a coherent finished thought it just kind of not muses around things but it, it just it has it presents things it doesn't have, it doesn't have like a clear message no. I've buried the needle here a little bit, but I really like the movie as well. Um, I think all these things are to its strength. I think Sam's right. It is less of a movie and more of an audio-visual experience with a, bit, with a heavy emphasis on audio. We'll get onto that in time when we talk about the audio. But the audio in this movie is something else at times. 
but it is something you kind of just you you submerge yourself in this movie and it just takes you places and you kind of it's one of those films i think for me particularly it sits exactly the right nexus of narrative cinema and art cinema Mm. Um, having watched a lot of art films over me over the years, especially in my, in my degree, some can stray too far into, I suppose, more surrealist emotive work that has no narrative to speak of and is more of a mood piece, and that's fine in itself. But it doesn't make a movie in my in, in my experience. And obviously, you've got the other end. You've got you know something as clear and simple as you know the Marvel films, which are kind of devoid of allegory and meaning, just literally are a fun story. And this sits somewhere between the two where it just, for me, it was that right balance of like, I've got a story here, I've got some characters, but large parts of this movie are kind of oddly shot, oddly framed, and kind of weird diversions and character style, long, rambling, shaggy stock stories that don't really mean anything or go anywhere. And it's just this real kind of textured experience of watching a film. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of the first time we see something like that this idea of a long rambling story is between Maida and Hess right at the beginning when Maida tells this story and there's something I mean firstly Hess seems to not particularly approve of the language that Maida uses mm. but I and I wonder to what extent we're meant to not approve it either and it feels like you kind of know that we're moving towards a point where, I mean, it, it has just told us that Mega is going to be the victim. Literally, the third title has told us that. Mm. But, and you think, well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, it, he's, he's presented in this deliberately sort of abrasive way with the, the way that he speaks. And you, you start thinking immediately, well, did that victim mean him, even though he's the new character that we've seen, or are we actually talking about Hess here? Mm. So immediately you start you start thinking and that that was one of the one one of the delightful things about this film I thought was the the way in which <laughs> roles aren't concrete. No, I I, I say I think I that I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. The film, it has this weird kind of, to bring it back, Brechtian feeling of you know what's going to happen. Um, but I suggest, you know, I mean, I think I, I mentioned that a little bit, but the audio on this movie is is amazing. The, the sort of the, the droning feel you get, and there's this sound that happens through kind of the bloodlust scenes, particularly. There's like really deep and really, uh, kind of, it was almost overwhelming to me watching it mm. it just can like it's one of those sounds that it like it fills every bit of your brain when you hear it it made me think of like the inception noises you heard the, the, the big sort of um noises that came through that movie and it, you see these kind of things echo down time and i think that this film just had that real sense of building a lot out of the audio levels i mean you're, you're more of the audio nerd than me certainly um but i really clicked into that a lot of this movie i i mean the I was I was pleased to see so right at the beginning that the the original music was composed and performed by Reverend Williams, but then it quickly became clear that not very much of the film soundtrack at all mm. is somewhere missing, and lots of it is that sort of 
um, kind of almost extra musical drone, like you're talking about. But then also they had like mo- a moment sort of sort of heightened bloodlust or heightened sex. Mm. There was that sort of um, kind of. Uh, the show cries that were sort of associated with an African tribe, and maybe you thought that they were, they were connecting to Murphy's there, um, and so it seemed like it's like you said that there's something that's almost too much about the sound. It becomes really immersive the way that there's this this low hum, and yet also these. Um, I think it's undulations. I'm going to say that. Okay. It's bound to be wrong. But these sort of sort of warbling, almost yodeling noise that you've got above that. But there's this sort of goes into something I was thinking about in in the first part in Victim. Um, there's something really trippy about the dreams the dream sequences, such that I wasn't really sure whether Maida stabbed Hess, because that felt like a dream. Mm. And then, like, it feels like it's a bit of a dream when Maida's in the bath, so I didn't know whether he killed himself or not. That just, so much of that just felt like a dream. I started to question lots of things about that part. Well, I think that's 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 the power of the movie, is you end up with lots of areas, like, you're unsure of what's real, and even in their world of what, it's a of what's real within the mise-en-scene of the movie, and then within that, what's their, their imaginings happening, if you didn't say. And the film really does play with that, particularly the sort of the dreams he has, has of the African um, queen and the African sort of people early on. That's, like, there's a weird feeling of, like, unreality and also reality putting at each other. Um, but his blood losses, you say, and some of the, uh, say, the sex scenes between him um, and Ganja, like, there's a certain feeling of, Everything that was soft focus, but just like a dreamlike quality, like a smoothness to all the scenes that really kind of takes you into that world you say where you're unsure of what's real and what's not. And there was something, there's something very aesthetically pleasing about this film because some of the scenes in the church at the beginning, at the end, are very sort of found footage esque. Mm. And then, like you say, you get those, those times as sort of a really smooth scene. There's something definitely not found footage, definitely sort of highly produced about some of the other scenes. Is that visual contrast is really obvious. I think that, I mean, that's having worked in movies where you end up with lots of different styles and lots of different materials because they run out of money. This didn't feel that way. You know, that this felt intentional. Um, but, and this is maybe why, as you and me as a bit of film nerds, we enjoy it so much, is the film seems to be making a lot of intentional choices. A lot of intentional choices there, but wasn't explaining why they were making them. Like there was clearly a reason why the church scenes were, you know, this handheld cinema verite style, and the African scenes were, you know, locked off camera, slow zooms, very traditional filmmaking. And he was trying to say something with that, or he it was a thought with that, but the film doesn't care to explain that, and just kind of hands it to us as orders and go, you solve it. 
And I think that's why this film has been like rattling around in my noodle since. And I want, I kind of want to watch it again soon to see if I get out this time around. Um, but the film, it's as I say, it sits on that right line of being like complex and dense without being so complex and dense that you're like, yeah, I'm lost to give up. Yeah. And what was, I, mean, I want to talk a bit about the kind of the racial implications of some of, the, some of it. What were you saying about the exploitation roots of it? So, I mean, you, you're what you want, 73 here. So you're coming off the black back of the black petition movement. So you've got, you know, you've had Shaft, you've had um, all these kind of movies. And there was a film called Blackula, uh, Black Dracula. Um, that had done great gangbusters as a, as a as a exploitation movie, and so the production company that put together uh, Ganja and Hess formed decided to make three three or five films. I think it was, it was five films, um, and commissioned those films to be exploitation films. So a film that could put the double bill, it would be schlocky, it'd be horrory, it would be some sort of you know you know you're going to go and get black vampires. Or you're going to go and get Aliens in Space, a traditional exploitation film, um, and so that's what this film was commissioned as. And if you do see the 73 minute version of the cut down version, it is much more in that vein. So clearly, you know, when they were filming it, they filmed that version of the movie. There is a version that was filmed by the director, by the cinematographer, that is a straight exploitation film, and it was released under the name of Blood Couple and. Black Vampire, loads of names over the years, but it was a straight, straight up kind of movie. But I think Bill Gunn, who made it, made that because he was told to, but really wanted to make this film. So this film sits, it sits out of the world of black potato cinema. It sits out of that world, but it, that's where its roots are. It's coming out of that, but it's also reacting to that. You know, a lot of um, black potato films are about crime, about criminals, about cops, and about revenge on the streets, and that kind of urbanistic life that was being exploited. So the exploitation of the black experience in America. This, you know, its main guy, main character is a wealthy, well-to-do anthropologist. Like he is not your traditional, he's not Shaft, he's not that kind of, you know, sort of character. He's not, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Foxy Brown sort of area. So he's a reaction to that. He's kind of, he is that kind of movie, oh, is a reaction to the thing it's also part of. And I think that's why its recutting was kind of almost so sad. It's because it was trying to say something more than was available after the films, but was kind of kept down in that world anyway. Not that it was down, but you know, but it, it was trying to do something different, and it wasn't allowed to. I I was thinking this this idea of trying to do something different. I was thinking about that in the scene where Major first shows suicidal thoughts, mm. and there is a very prominent noose. Um, so in kind of in the, it's a weird shot because the foreground is Hess and a noose, mm. and then the background it's really quite murky and you can't see, but it's made there in a tree, and the, that noose is there to remind you about lynching, mm. and that never gets mentioned. the The closest that gets to being mentioned is when Hess says. Don't kill yourself because if a black man's body, I'm the only coloured on the block. Yeah. If a black man's body turns up, I'm going to get pulled into question into questioning, and that's kind of the the nearest we get to it. But you get the sense as well. I mentioned class at the beginning, and I feel that this is 
you particularly saw this in the way that Ganja treats Archie, mm. that there is something, a, a superior way that some characters treat others, and it's not necessarily a racial thing. And there's something very, I mean, there's something very interesting there that Gunn seems to be saying that, it seems to make quite a complicated point about Yes, the oppression of black men, but also the sort of internecine sort of oppressions and difficulties you get between different classes of black people. Mm. Um, and I thought that was that was really subtle, and I really enjoyed that. And I think that that seems to me, I mean, from what you're saying, entirely missing from the original cut. But I'm not surprised that Gunn got frustrated with what he was doing if he wasn't allowed to do anything like that. I, I agree. I think it's interesting. You look at the two reactions to the immortality curse blessing, um, the two reactions of Ganja and Hess. Um, Hess obviously comes disillusioned with it all, and as a reaction, this ends up embracing kind of Western Christian religion and ends up with his, I mean, spoilers, ends up with his death at, in face of, of a. Christian Judeo-Christian cross, whereas Ganja doesn't. She needs to embrace the lifestyle, um, and yeah, her last shot is her in a window smiling. And it's like there is, as you say, that there's a weird kind of class element there because he, she, he's very obviously well to do, and she talks about coming up more from the street level, um, and their reactions to this, and and this was something earlier about it being kind of complex in its answers. The film. Obviously, at this point in time, you're looking at racial tension in America. You're still looking, obviously, to this day. But the idea of the lost African heritage is a big part of this movie. You know, you talk about the, the lost African um, sort of culture he's studying is a reference to the general lost African culture of a lot of black Americans. Um, but at the end, he is, in quotes here, saved to death by Western religion. And that isn't presented as a good or bad thing, just a thing. You do see him quite happy afterwards, and you see him kind of running through the field. And there's a moment for him, particularly, of releasing that. But the film, like this is where I should say, it kind of has to present ideas, but doesn't help you along the lines. I don't know if this film is saying good things about either of those things. You know, it was the the African blood drinking um, culture and this blade that gave this curse to Ganja and Hess. So is it bad? But there's clearly, obviously, as you say, there's the the way they're shot. The scenes of, of the African religion are beautiful and flowy and majestic, whereas the shots of the Western Christian religion are much more frenetic and close up and angry in many ways. And it's it just the film is it's this puzzle box to solve that you're never going to solve. But I think that's why I like it. I think, as you say, it has so many complex thoughts to get across. That the fact that we're still here talking about it half an hour afterwards, normally we're at the point going, should we be on? But now we're literally just, I could go on for an hour, but it's it's been hands down one of my favourite films we've watched recently. It has been generally, I suppose this is the second genre we've done, and one I've appreciated earlier in the century, Bridges of understanding the roots of a genre. I've sort of really started to get my teeth into something when you get into the seventies and eighties, mm. and and even nineties and beyond. And this, I mean, it, it 
genuinely fascinated me and this is a film that's pushing 50 years old these are the kind of movies it's that not always. I wanted to do with the show one of the reasons why we started the show was to find our movies and talk about them and ones that weren't I mean, talked about and so this is right in there but as always we do end the show with other things to recommend um, Sam do you have other sh- movies or other sort of media you want to kind of point us towards yeah, and I'm glad I'm going first because I want to be the one to talk about the one other film that Dwayne Jones did before he died. Um, it, Dwayne Jones' uh, screen in this um, was a various other things. He was a teacher at one point. He was only in two big films before his untimely death. I think he died in his 30s. Um uh, it was this film and five years before Night of the Living Dead. And I suppose, I mean, Night of the Living Dead is, is a brilliant horror mm. film, but it's, it also says a, a lot of things about racial tensions in America at the time. And it's no coincidence that its star is a black man. And it's just brilliant. And if anyone hasn't seen it, they should go and watch it now. Um, my second recommendation is more sort of... It's not a direct actor connection. It's more a thematic connection. Not really thematic, but... It, it was, I was thinking about that immersive sort of aesthetic experience you're talking about with, with the sound and the visuals as well. And it reminded me of, um, actually, a film that we were talking about, um, peek behind the curtain here, a film that we were talking about before we started recording. Um, it was a film that Rob worked on, and also, actually, a film we've talked about on the podcast before, and it's 2009's Valhalla Rising, because I felt at moments... In as I said said in the, in the course of this episode, it felt sort of a, it was just a bit too almost mm. too much at times with the sound and the and, and the pictures and there's something I kind of felt with Valhalla Rising as well. There was something very very immersive and almost almost too much about that as well, almost excessive about that. So those are my two. Night of the Living Dead. Two very different films. Night of the Living Dead and Valhalla Rising. Great. On the, oddly enough, I, hadn't, I wasn't going to recommend uh, that one, so we went across over. Um, so okay. I'm going to go for the simple one that I'm kind of just uh, mentioning because I can. Um, Mabel King, who played the Queen of Mytheria in the dream sequence, is an actress who's done a lot of things over the years. Um, but she did pop up as uh, a very small role in the 1988 movie, the best Christmas film ever made, Scrooged. <laughs> Not horrible. I think, genuinely, I think it's, it's, it's apart from maybe Muppets, it's a load of Muppets, but one of the best Christmas films ever made that often is overlooked is Scrooged. Um, so it feels weird to be recommending a Christmas film in mid-August, um, but here we are anyway. So she's a small role. This is one of my recommendations where I've kind of found the reason to mention the film rather than anything else um so yeah she's uh she plays grammy in it um but if you haven't seen scrooge and a lot of people haven't because it kind of gets lost in the in the sort of the normal sway of christmas it is 
everything you want a messed up Bill Murray doing at Christmas. It is brilliant and cynical and heartwarming and vicious and just hilarious from start to end. Glad you said that. Glad you made the comment of the Muppets. I was just about to fight you. Yeah, Muppets, obviously. They're very different experiences. Um, and Muppets, I think, would probably edge it from I just think that is that is a perfect film. Uh, but Scrooge, I think, it gets undoubtedly. Like, it is it's off, so often overlooked in terms of Christmas films. Um, so I do want to fight for it a bit more. My second recommendation is, I suppose, thematic. Um, though it would be a hard one to draw a direct line to. And that is the uh, film from 2017, Get Out. Oh, I love Love that film. One of the best films of the year. It does similar work. It is nowhere near as art film and narrativeless as Gandron Hess. But in terms of a horror movie that is doing great work to explore racial tensions um, in a complex manner, in a way that isn't simply white people are bad, black people are victims, it does do that. But it also works on a deeper level in many ways. And it's another film, when I watched it, it sat with me for a long time. I thought it over again. I watched it again to try and get more out of it. So I think that there's a very, not a clear line, but you can see echoes of Ganja and Hess and the way it's dealing with the black experience in America in Get Out. And it's both of them cracking horror movies. Uh, get Out is a brilliant horror movie on top of everything else it is. And I saw, when I saw it just after it came out, so early 2017, I actually sat and thought about Get Out this evening. So that tells you how long it stays with you. Brilliant. It is a, a brilliant movie. So guys, that was Ganja and Hess. Next week we are stepping forward into the 1980s. We're moving from the surreal to something else. Um, we're going to pick up with the 1980 comedy, black comedy, um, Vampire's Kiss, starring a very young Nicholas Cage. Till then, guys, you can find both of us online at Pretty Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Kaiju FM. And we'll see you guys back here in two weeks' time. <laughs>